For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the podcast formerly known as the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, June 7th, the feckless C-word edition. We have a big announcement that we'll get to in a couple moments. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate. And joining me from Slate's New York studio is Verilyn Williams, the producer of this very podcast. Welcome, Verilyn. Hi, Christina. And with Verilyn in New York is Kat Chow, who we're so excited to welcome for her first time on the show. She whoop, is whoop. a reporter and a podcaster at NPR's Code Switch. <laughs> Kat, we're so happy to have you. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So... First off, we are really excited to announce that we have finally come up with a new name. Our listeners have suggested so many great names. It's been, I almost wanted to extend uh, this deliberation period a little longer because everyone's been sending us so much great stuff. But the name of this podcast, formerly known as the Double X Gab Fest, is The Waves. Mm. We've been thinking about the waves of feminism, we're thinking about sound waves, we're thinking about making waves, and we're especially excited to put to rest a name that has served the podcast very well for the past, uh, what is it, a decade? How long has yeah, this podcast it's been? Oh, wow, that's a while. I remember listening to this yeah. podcast when I was in college, so yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, there's. Uh, we've spoken in previous episodes about the reasons why we think it's time for a switch. And since we're going weekly now and we're adding a lot of new voices, it seemed like a good time for a rebranding. So we're so happy to have finally landed on something. Um, and we'll be debuting some new art to go along with the name. So be on the lookout for that in your podcast feed. Yay. So Kat, what do you think of the waves? Oh, man. Well, when I think about the waves, immediately I think about, you know, like, the waves of feminism, like you said, Christina. And so I think it's an apt name. I'm curious to see how your diehard listeners feel about it, though. Yeah, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there will be some mixed feelings. I'm excited to see how other people will interpret the name, which uh, we purposely wanted it to be open to multiple interpretations. Yeah, that's good. Uh, we have one other announcement. Um to celebrate the the podcasts going weekly and the new name, we're hosting a live show in D.C., my hometown. So I'm very excited to be uh, joining the panel on that podcast. Um, it'll be Tuesday, July 17th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hamilton. Um, tickets are $20 to $30, but if you're a Slate Plus member, which you should be, you can get 30% off your ticket. Um, tickets will go on sale later this week, and you can go to slate.com slash live for updates. That's Tuesday, July 17th. I'm so excited to hopefully meet some listeners there. All right, let's get into today's topics. First off, we'll be talking about a word that's been in the news awkwardly for some outlets uh, for the past week, the word cunt a word that was powerful enough to force Samantha B to apologize for a segment on her show where she used it to talk about Ivanka Trump. 
Then we'll talk about Down syndrome and efforts in a few state legislatures to prohibit women from terminating their pregnancies for reasons of a Down syndrome diagnosis. Ruth Graham, uh, who's a Slate contributor, will be on to talk about a fantastic piece that she just published at Slate. And finally, we will dive into a rabbit hole of the works of Ali Wong. Uh, She's got a Netflix special out. It's called Hard Knock Wife. I believe it came out in May. On Mother's Day. Very appropriately came out on (laughs) Mother's Day. And then in our Slate Plus segment, where we take a topic and rate it from 1 to 10 on the scale of sexism, we will decide whether or not it's sexist to evaluate Kim Kardashian's meeting with Donald Trump through the lens of her gender and sex appeal. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to hear us rate things on a scale from 1 to 10 on a sexist scale, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash XX Plus. All right. Cunt, the word that has been <laughs> talked around in the New York Times and the Washington Post, talked explicitly about on Slate.com and other news sites. We've been thinking about it for a week. And I'm wondering, Verilyn, what do you think of the word that oh, got God. Samantha B in trouble? Oh, first of all, I've said the cunt more times this week than I've ever said in my whole entire life. Um, um, so in case she, just to give people a framing in case you've been living under a rock for the last week, Samantha B called Ivanka Trump a feckless cunt on her late night comedy show Full Frontal with Samantha B on TBS. Why? Well, Ivanka posted what I do agree was a pretty tone deaf picture of her holding her son with the caption, my heart, exclamation point, Hashtag Sunday morning. This was in the midst of her dad's immigration policies being criticized for one, separating migrant children and their parents at the border, and two, for losing nearly 1,500 migrant children in 2017. So while talking about these, to use B's words on the same show, quote, awful immigration practices, Samantha B said, well, this. After decades of ignoring the issue, Americans are finally paying attention. Well, most of us, Ivanka Trump, who works at the White House, chose to post the second most oblivious tweet we've seen this week. You know, Ivanka, that's a beautiful photo of you and your child, but let me just say, one mother to another, do something about your dad's immigration practices, you feckless cunt. He listens to you. Put on something tight and low cut and tell your father to fucking stop it. Tell him it was an Obama thing and see how it goes, okay? That moment where everyone <gasps> and then starts cheering, mm-hmm. I think the like, audience reacts. Even in her own audience, it was interesting to see that there is like this like cunt is a word that is a violent attack for so many women. I mean, it even just sounds so uh like so hard of a word yeah it's like yeah it's got the hard consonants it's a one syllable word it sounds a little bit like fuck and uh i think the people who made a big stink about this on the internet and in uh, their public statements were people who i think were feigning a little bit of offense because they were conservatives so sarah huckabee sanders who, uh, you know, the White House spokesperson who called them vile and vicious and said, you know, this show is not fit for broadcast. There was Megyn Kelly, who said it was disgusting and unacceptable. Um, but then there was also Chelsea Clinton, who said, you know, it, who's a, a friend of Ivanka Trump's, by the way, or at least uh, a former friend, 
um, an image said that at least. it was inappropriate. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't just right wing folks who were getting mad about this for reason of you know putting down somebody who was criticizing Donald Trump, but it was mostly people on the right wing. Um, but as you said, Verilyn, it's it's a word that I think a lot of women don't approve of in terms of calling another woman that word. I think it's, you know, clearly a pejorative gendered word that reduces somebody to her genitals. Um, But it's also a word that a lot of people have tried to reclaim. Yeah. For me, I think that what got me about Samantha B using the word cunt, it's not that she, you know, called another woman a slur. I mean, sure, we can debate whether or not cunt is able to be reclaimed at all. But it's the fact that just using that word completely derailed any part of the message yeah. that she actually wanted to say, which was she wanted to make this broader point about immigration and how we treat immig- like immigrant families and immigrant children, especially. And yet, like, it just got so lost in the, I guess, the shock value of the word. It reminded me about the word racist and how like, you know, a lot of people are debating whether or not journalists should use the word racist or racism when describing uh, certain people's actions in the White House. And I I mean, I know that these are not exactly equal or parallel things because cunt is for sure a slur and racist is not a slur at all. You know, like <laughs> racist is just like a loaded word that uh, it's a descriptor. It's a descriptor. Um, and like white supremacists don't like the word racist sometimes, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it. And so I just kept thinking about how um there are times where like sometimes words are are much more distracting and i guess i mean this 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 whole cunt gate or whatever you want to call it i mean uh cunt gate sounds so terrible <laughs> but can i can i put, can i can we think about it cuz i've been the one i've been thinking about is is cunt a slur and I know, like, and I, the same way I think, like, is when pe- when people say racism is, is is a slur, I think when you center whiteness, cunt is a slur, and being called a racist is like one of the worst things that imaginable, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about, like, you know, in in people comparing Roseanne, what Roseanne said, to what Samantha B said, I'm like, okay, can let's you think just of- remind us what Roseanne said? Yes, I guess. <laughs> she tweets, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. And VJ is Valerie Jarrett, who is one of President Obama's aides. And a woman of color. And a, yeah, a black woman. And a black woman. And I think she was very much pandering to her audience, which is, you know, the MAGA folks, right? And so in saying, and so in comparing Samantha B calling Ivanka Trump uh, the C word and in, in, in thinking about that being as offensive as Roseanne Barr comparing a black woman to an ape, I think like we're not taking into account the racial impact of calling a, a black woman an ape. And at the end of the day, for me, when you think of the word cunt, you're still you're talking about a woman's vagina, which is something a woman has. And so you're still it's still like you're a human, whereas calling a black woman an ape is lends to dehumanizing a person and you're essentially saying the person is not human which is what has allowed slavery and like people to be dehumanizing when you think about the incarceration system so for me in thinking and also I will say that I never like I said I never thought about the word cunt until I got to college and I took everything with feminism in the title and I thought then I thought a lot about it and I think like a lot of that has to do with the way in which white feminism was centered in those classes. And in one of the things that we read, Katie Waldman's article in The New Yorker, she says... 
The fact remains there is no sexist insult that can rival cunt for its coarseness and provocation, inappropriateness and inexcusability. And she asks why. And when I was reading that, I thought, well, bedwench is a word that always makes my heart jump. You know, bedwench. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? When someone calls you a wench or a bedwench, oh. it like it refers to an enslaved woman whose job it was to sleep in their master's bed and keep it warm for when essentially he was ready to rape her. And to quote Urban Dictionary, <laughs> it typically is a term that's applied to African American women, but technically can be applied to all women of color. So. So I think that when we talk about cunt as a slur or as the worst thing any woman can be called, I've been thinking about the ways in which that centers white women because it's not the worst thing that I can be called or most women of color can be called. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I I was thinking about, I think it was also in that Katie Waldman piece um, where she mentioned <laughs> it, was, it was really so- good. She was just like, let um, me tell you all the things. <laughs> yeah, I I was really surprised to learn that the origin of the word is as just a plain old noun. It was, uh, you know, the word for vagina or vulva in, you know, Old Norse and uh, Middle Dutch and uh, Old Frisian and uh, mm-hmm. some other languages I have never heard of. Um, so it really used to be a, a descriptor and used in in puns, in old literature. Um, It's only a slur insofar as we want to attach a pejorative connotation to a woman's genitalia. And I'd read a lot of feminist literature reclaiming the cunt. There's a a famous vagina monologue about it, which is incredibly, unforgivably corny, um, but meant a lot to me as an 18-year-old. Just talks about the sounds of the word. Like what you were saying, Kat, it's a really powerful sounding word. Um, it's like it talks about cavern, cackle, clit, cute, close, and then curvy, and then the letters fit together. And then at the end, it ends in this like electrical pulse. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, it feels good to say. It feels powerful. And I think Samantha B in the anger that she was sort of ginning up on the show in saying that word, even though I don't believe she was actually referring to the body part that the vagina monologue is talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it made a sort of fitting coda to her sentence. Um, and the gendered aspect of it, I think, brought it home in a way that calling her, you know, a jerk or something mm-hmm. wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that people wouldn't have paid attention if it was anything else. So. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so I went yesterday I went around the office and I was asking people here what they think of the word cunt. And one of the um one of our colleagues was talking about the way in which the queer community uses cunt as a way to kind of like like reclaiming it and and um they brought up the word hunty. And that's a word that I've never hunty. used cunt, but I've used hunty. And hunty. What does hunty mean? Hunty is a combination of honey and cunt, which I didn't know. It blew my mind. And like anyone that's watched. I also didn't know it was that combination. I thought it was right? just honey. <laughs> and it's like anyone that's watched The Real Housewives of Atlanta have heard, has heard this word thrown around. I'm looking at um, Daniel because me and him have a love for The Real Housewives um, phenomenon. And I was like, oh, like, okay, this is, I can say hunty. But I would never say, like, you know, and I think like for me, I, I think it's interesting in the ways different 
versions com- of the word. Different version yeah. of the word is quote unquote more acceptable or, or easy just, to hear. I guess it's just evolved into something different, right? Yeah. To make it, yeah, more palatable or, you know, it has a slightly different connotation. So it's not anything, you know, related to a pejorative. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. I think the offensive thing to me is not related at all to the word itself, but the intent behind it. Yes. And so when yeah. Samantha B said it, I thought that it was just, you know, lazy. She could have come up with something much more descriptive right. to uh, bring forth how cruel and heartless Ivanka Trump is. Um, at the same time, it, I guess it was a little bit descriptive because she's talking about Ivanka Trump uses her womanhood and her femininity to sort of gloss over the horrors that her father is perpetrating with his immigration policies. Um, so I guess a feminized insult made sense there. Um, but I, the fact that somebody would purposely, if it was a man, for instance, which I think the word is very different when it's not coming from another woman, but when somebody uses that word or the word bitch, I mm-hmm. think, you know, you're not supposed to use that word. You know, it's gendered and you're using it anyway. Right. And mm-hmm. the fact that like that, that you, you would process that through your head and decide to use it is uh, the thing that's offensive to that's me. That's the interest. So this is what I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, both of you, is, I mean, so Samantha B eventually came out with an apology saying, you know, she should have never used that word. And then TBS also apologized yeah. and said that, you know, they should have never let that happen. And so, I mean, you don't just put that word into a script because it was scripted. And like, you know, just look the other way and not expect any fallout. I kind of think that they had some sense of the gravity of this. And so, I mean, how do you think they handled it as a network? I think they couldn't have handled it worse. Mm. I think if you're going to use that word that you know, I mean, regardless of whether or not you think it's valid that it has such a that it's such a strong that people perceive it as such a strong slur, regardless of whether or not you think that's valid, it, it is. People believe that. And if you're going to put that in a script, you know, referring to the president's one of his mm-hmm. closest advisors and also his daughter, you better have a good reason for it. And yeah, I think they probably right. did have a good reason for it. I mean, people are talking about this segment more now than they would have. Right. And like what Marilyn said, yeah. she never would have, you know, paid it any, paid any attention to it. But I mean, right. I, I feel like I'm echoing June, June Thomas and saying this. But at the end of the day, this is a capitalist society. And so once those advertisers started pulling out, you know, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, like yeah. no matter what explanation or what justification they had, they were just like, we need to do damage yeah. control and all morality, all of like values that they had and, and intentionality that they had in making that joke and like being OK with approving it and like putting it in the script and writing it down just went out the window. One of the, my favorite pieces um, on this whole Samantha B. Ivanka Feckless cunt. Feckless is also an amazing word. Feckless is like the the combination of feckless (laughs) and cunt just from like an audio perspective. They're like both like hard sounds together. And so it's really weird to say those two words together. But Mm. Scotchy Cole from BuzzFeed wrote this really good piece that I liked that kind of sums up um, just the idea that you know, she thought that Samantha B should have been more precise. And I think, like, I just want to read a couple lines of what mm-hmm. she wrote, because I think, for me, it sort of underscores a point that that makes a lot of sense. And it's, if you want to go after someone who doesn't play by any commonly accepted rules, going high doesn't necessarily 
work any better than going low. But whichever way you're going, make sure you stop to map out the route before you leave. And I guess Mm. that kind of makes me think about, like, from a cynical perspective, like what you both were saying about how, you know, TBS knew exactly probably what it was doing. And it knew that once advertisers started pulling from the show, they had to come up with an apology. So to me, a part of me is like, this is all, (laughs) this is all just played out. This is all Mm. something that they knew. But I don't know. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah, like they, this is this is this actually was the intended desire. I don't know. All right, I think that's all the time we have to talk about cunts, uh, listeners. I want to know what you guys think of the word cunt. Do you use it? Have you reclaimed it? Uh, you can let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash double X Gabfest, or email double X Gabfest at slate.com. I assume those contact methods will change soon with our names but for now that's how you should reach us (laughs) (laughs) and can i add a question i kind of i also want to know what shapes people's feelings around cunt because i think Mm. like sometimes that's even like that's even more interesting to me so why do you feel that way or do you not feel that way right is it a non-issue for you i would love to know when you visit arizona time is measured in moments not minutes Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. All right, for our second topic today, we're talking about Down syndrome and the difficult decisions families have to make, whether to get a prenatal genetic testing and what to do if the testing comes back with a high probability of Down syndrome. There are several states out there who have passed bills or are in the process of discussing bills that would prohibit women from getting abortions for reasons of a Down syndrome diagnosis. Ruth Graham, a Slate contributor, has published a fantastic piece on Slate. Uh, It published May 31st. She did some deep reporting about the legislative battles, about countries plummeting rates of people born with Down syndrome. Ruth, we're so happy to have you on the show today. I'm thrilled to be here. You did a deep dive into the kinds of bills that are being debated in state legislatures right now. Can you tell us what is in the works, what's been passed, and how are uh, pro-life activists framing these bills? Yeah, so that's one of the big reasons this story felt timely at this particular moment. So Ohio, um, I I focus on a family, or the beginning and the end of the story focuses on a a family in Ohio who has a young daughter with Down syndrome. Um, And John Kasich signed a law there in Ohio. It is law now, although um, it's held up in court but that criminalizes abortion in cases or yeah criminalizes abortion in cases where the doctor knows that the woman believes um that the fetus has down syndrome so it's a little bit um contorted in a way and mm-hmm. so a guy at Nayral uh pro choice ohio told me that it would basically be the most extreme ban in the country because it's based on mindset um, so really just if a mother believes the fetus has Down syndrome, it would be criminalized. Um, and all the state laws are, are, you know, they're written in different ways. But um, the only one that's fully in effect right now is North Dakota, where I believe there's just one clinic um, and it hasn't come up there yet. So it's sort of um, 
still to be tested what this what these laws look like on the ground, but they've been debated just this year in um, Illinois and Kentucky and Utah. The Pennsylvania House passed a bill in April, um, so we'll see what happens with that one. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a major tack of the pro-life movement. And uh, the argument is, I mean, you can point to Europe, you mentioned this in your intro, Christina, but in the UK, in Iceland, in Denmark, and some other parts of Europe, um, termination rates after a mother receives a diagnosis of Down syndrome uh, is they're over 90%. Um, so, and the testing rates are very high there. So you have geneticists there talking about, you know, Down syndrome being eliminated, although, you know, that's happening via abortion. Um, and the U.S. testing isn't as widespread here, um, but uh, women who do get tested, about three-quarters of them who receive a, a diagnosis do uh, terminate the pregnancy. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's something that is it is really happening. It's a real phenomenon. Um, and the, the pro-life movement's answer to this, you know, is to try to is to try to ban it. And at try state to legislate level. it. Hey, Ruth, I have a question. When you were talking about, um, you know, like the Ohio law, especially, uh, how do you prove if the mother believes that her that the fetus might have Down syndrome? Because that seems yeah. like, like to prove belief seems so mm-hmm. difficult. I think I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that this law probably will not ever go into effect. Um, but theoretically, according to, you know, the people I talked to, you could issue a subpoena to, to a patient to testify in court about her own reasons for seeking the procedure, about the conversations that she had with the doctor, basically trying to find out what the doctor knew about the patient mindset. Um, you know, it's really hard to imagine how that would happen because presumably the patient would have to come up with the complaint. And in a case like this, it's hard to imagine why that would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, it, it's really wild to think about how that would play out in court. One of the things that's really struck me about the debate, and I've written a bit about um, the legislation, but one thing that I loved about your piece, Ruth, is that you really spoke with, you know, families who have made this decision and how they're dealing with the debate about the choices that they've made in the past. Um, it, it feels unfair and and emotionally manipulative to invoke, as a lot of the anti-abortion activists have been doing, living people with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like the argument, you know, what if your mother had aborted you or something? Yeah. Like, don't mm-hmm. these people with Down syndrome deserve to live? Which, of course, they do. And, you know, no one is making the argument that that people shouldn't have Down syndrome. And so I think that's why this debate feels so touchy and and personal for people, even if even if you're not considering abortion or have had an abortion, but just to think about the idea of, you know, there's a population of people whose community is shrinking. Um, but also, this isn't necessarily about living people with Down syndrome. It's about pregnant women who may or may not have Down syndrome, who are making a choice about their own bodies and who are dealing with that choice being legislated on the basis of reasoning, which it mm-hmm. is uh, completely absurd to me. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I heard from a lot of um, parents afterwards about, and, and you know, in the reporting process too, who love parenting their children, and that just that doesn't quite feel like it's certainly not the only question here. So, I mean, the interesting thing here is how disability rights activists have 
been involved yeah. in this debate, um, and sort of the, they're often pro-choice. Um, so the, there's a pro-choice disability rights argument, and I think it's still possible. I, one activist put it this way, um, basically, that anti-disability bias is sort of baked into the logic of these yes, anti-abortion right, laws, yeah. because the underlying assumption there is that unless people are legally prohibited from aborting fetuses with disabilities, that they will definitely do so. And there's nothing you can do to make a parent want a child with a disability. So you just have to force them to give birth. Um, and that seems right to me that that logic is sort of baked into the laws. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the argument that if you care about disabled people, that you should care deeply about preserving the concept of bodily autonomy um, so that those concepts hmm. are really deeply connected. Can you walk us through the argument of, you know, people who are pro-choice and disability rights advocates? Sure. I mean, I think a big part of it, you know, again, there's that connection between um, bodily autonomy. So in this case, you know, in the case of a pregnancy, the the choices of a woman to, you know, to make decisions about her own body and about her own family, um, that also, that connects deeply to what the disability rights community cares about, which is making sure that people with disabilities have as much control as possible over their own bodies and their own choices. Um, so those are very closely linked issues. Um, uh, I think that you can also, you know, you can find the termination rates overall profoundly disturbing without questioning any individual woman's decision about her own pregnancy. So I think that gets into it too. Like we need to find a way of talking about the culture-wide termination rates. Um, Because I do see, you know, the selective elimination of an entire condition like this, you know, losing it, um, potentially, that's a loss of difference on a Mm society-wide level. I think it's a statement about what we as a culture value about human beings about what makes life worth living. And I think it's possible to talk about those things and to grapple with those things, even if we think that individual women should be able to make, um, you know, their own choices based on their own needs and their own pregnancies and their own bodies. Yeah, I was really struck by the pro-information movement. Mm -hmm. And the problem is people don't know what actually having a child with Down syndrome means, what that means for your life. Yeah. And the the lack of information actually perpetuates the fear and probably will lead more people to make the choice not to have a child with Down syndrome. But if you just gave people more information, like there was a moment where your main, uh, the woman that you followed, Celeste Blau, there was a moment where she said, like when she was talking to her husband about it, that he was surprised that, you know, their daughter would be able to read. That is like fundamentally a problem. And I and and, uh, you know, I was thinking a lot like when I was reading it, just despite what people think more like 61 percent of women who terminate their pregnancy in this country have already had at least one child. Mm -hmm. And I I think a lot of this is like you need to trust women's choices. There's like built in this is like we need to control women. And it's just like I I'm just frustrated. And the the woman that you you follow, Celeste, she ends up having a second child and you know there's a line in which i think you say she ends up not getting testing because her insurance didn't cover it which is like there's like layers and layers on this like we want to control women's (laughs) we want to control women's choices but we don't want to give them health insurance you know like there's just so much in that um but i was wondering like did you talk to other women that maybe made the decision not to have 
um, you know, a second child knowing that there was a chance that they would have Down syndrome too. And like, I guess I'm just saying, trying to get into the mind of that woman. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I Most of the parents I spoke to, um, I, I did not talk to anyone who, who explicitly described their later, you know, childbearing plans in terms of the child they already had. Although, you know, obviously that happens all the time. Any kid you have affects your thinking about the next kid. Um, one of the, my, my, I have a brother-in-law with Down syndrome and he's the oldest of five. And I've always just been in awe of my mother-in-law mm-hmm. having, you know, one child with Down syndrome and having four more children who, who are all, um, um, don't, you know, don't have Down syndrome, but, mm-hmm. um, but yes, that definitely happens. And and Verilyn, you also mentioned the the pro information approach, which is this other um, legislative approach to it that there was some um, by you know bipartisan consensus on. Um, mm-hmm. There's about 20 states that have these kind of laws, although a lot of them are really toothless. Um, but the idea is, you know, just to make sure that doctors provide up to date information, doctors and genetic counselors um, up to date information. And in some cases, the idea is sort of that it would be some more positive information, balanced information to make sure that parents have resources, you know, for local groups to know that they'll have support locally if they do um, decide to uh, carry on with the pregnancy. So, because I, you know, I talk to people who, there's a woman at a a nonprofit who works with parents sort of right after the point of diagnosis, whether that happens prenatally or at birth. Mm. And, you know, she's talked to parents in very recent years who have information given them given to them that uses the term mongoloid, which is just like mm. an old slur, just an awful slur. Um, you know, situations where nurses are crying at, after the delivery because the baby has Down syndrome. Um, and those kind of things, I think, make it so much harder, you know, especially in the first sort of confusing and difficult period after a diagnosis or after a birth. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of parents who say, listen, you know, we don't need to ban this, um, but it would just, it, it would be so helpful to give a fuller picture of what life with a child with Down syndrome means. Um, there's another woman who I interviewed who had, she had, I think, three older children. This was a second marriage, and she was in her 40s. Um, and she got the genetic screening really just because she wanted to find out the sex of the baby earlier. She was going to have a, you know, a gender reveal party and was like, oh, I can find out at like 10 weeks now. Um, and then, you know, the screening came back positive and that just sort of threw her, her life into turmoil. And she did decide to go on with the pregnancy after really thinking about it and, you know, debating it. You know, she, she thought about it deeply and really considered it. Um, but she had her son, but she said just at every turn during the pregnancy, and again, this is her experience, but just felt like doctors were either assuming she would get an abortion or, you know, really, she felt really pushed into it. This was in Brooklyn. Um, oh, this was in New York. Gotcha. So it was sort of, you know, doctors sitting her down and saying, like, you have older kids, like, is this the legacy that you want to leave them? And, you know, just framing a pregnancy like that just in terms of burden and difficulty. Mm. Um, so yeah. I think it's worth thinking about, like, you know, is there a way that that could be different without, right. you know, banning abortion in these cases? Yeah. Um, the pro-information aspect is interesting to me just in terms of the abortion rights landscape, because I know I want to say all of the, you know, pro-information laws that exist outside of the issue of Down syndrome 
are almost completely anti-abortion, telling women if you have an abortion, you're likely to feel depressed, you might feel suicidal, it causes breast cancer. A lot of these things um, are flat out lies. Uh, And the idea of legislating a certain type of information that a doctor has to give a pregnant person, to me, that automatically makes me uh, skewed out because yeah. I think there's always a fine line between you know giving information, persuading somebody, con- coercing somebody, uh, especially if you're coming into if you are a member of a marginalized community that has distrust for a medical authority, or uh, or if you you never know what perspective or where the doctor is coming from. That's true. Yeah, your point about most pro information laws being really anti-choice um, or um, objected to by the anti-choice activists is is a really good point. And the disability rights activists who I spoke to who have worked on this issue said, you know, when they first kind of started this push, they had to really sit down with pro-choice activists and really um, talk with them and explain that, you know, this one was different. Um, and, you know, they did sort of come to consensus. This was a, these were campaigns that pro-life and pro-choice groups worked on together for a while. So there was a a tenuous kind of detente there that has since broken apart. All complicated. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It is. Listeners, if you haven't read Ruth's piece yet, it's called Choosing Life with Down Syndrome. You can find it at Slate.com. It's uh, a fantastic reported piece. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really interesting. Thank you. Ali Wong is our final topic for today. My fave. Kat, I was I was so happy when you suggested this topic. Yeah, I um I remember watching her first Netflix stand-up special um Baby Cobra which came out in 2016. Um it was the first time I had heard of her and uh I recently watched her second Netflix special Hard Knock Wife which came out in May. Um Kat, tell us why she's your favorite. Well, like you I also didn't you know, know who she was in 2016. And it's, first of all, it's so weird to think that 2016 was two years ago and she was very, very pregnant when she did that first stand up. And she was also very, very pregnant when she did Hard Knock Wife this year. <laughs> so just to think about, you know, having two children, two yeah. babies. I mean, I'm not a mother. I've never been pregnant. So I, I just can't imagine, you know, just like the physicality of that. But I heard about her you know, from her first stand-up. And I was so intrigued by her because um, I saw that, you know, she was a writer for the show Fresh Off the Boat, which is the ABC sitcom about uh, an Asian-American family. And it comes from uh, the celebrity chef Eddie Huang's memoir of the same name. But so when I saw that, you know, there was this comedian, Ali Wong, she was, you know, a writer for Fresh Off the Boat, she would be doing stand-up. I was, like, I had no idea what to expect, but her humor is completely irreverent. It's it's funny. It's so dirty. I <laughs> didn't know that uh, pregnancy could be so, I mean, I knew, I obviously know that pregnancy is, you know, very traumatizing for the body, but I had never really, you know, sat there and thought about it so much as when I, you know, went and saw her show in person. And oh, I remember, cool. um, like, I was in D.C. and I was with a few friends and we were, you know, sitting. It was a seated show. And behind us, there was a very pregnant woman with her friend. Mm-hmm. And this was as Ali Wong was going through her jokes, you know, talking about jungle Asians, whatever, but then also talking about just the pain of what it is like to push a child out of, you know, like your uterus and your vagina. 
Like my face is squenching. Yeah, yeah. Marilyn's Marilyn's face is just contorting. I wish you could see this, Christina. But the whole time I was just so aware of uh, this really pregnant woman behind me freaking out and having to be comforted by her friend who was like, no, your pregnancy is not going to be like this. Like, (laughs) it's okay. You're going to be you're going to be fine. But I kind of just wanted to be like, no, I bet your pregnancy will because this is just this is what happens it just destroys a woman's body yes, even as yes. it's really beautiful i appreciated that aspect of her of her comedy so much i think like people like people don't talk about those that part of pregnancy everyone pretends i always often feel like people forget it's like this weird drug like you you take it and you have a weird trip and then you forget and then you're like I want to do that again and then yeah. you have the same weird trip um, and so I really appreciated this like her just like going at it and just saying like listen uh, you know what's the worst thing ever having a c-section <laughs> or, or wait, wait what did she say um, breastfeeding breastfeeding yeah. Oh, yeah oh my god when she was talking about breastfeeding and then also because I've had friends that you know there's always this pressure of like you know they say this is what makes your child a genius and so you feel this pressure <laughs> to like you know because everyone wants a genius right. to breastfeed and just hearing her talk about it but not even in the context of um, I want my child to be smart because I'm sure there's like there's already like a you know the the stereotype of Asians being smart. So I love yeah, that yeah. she kind of like took that and like turned it over on its head. Totally. And she was just like, I this is the thing I want to do for my child because I'm gonna feel guilty about like leaving my child and going on a tour. You know. So I think like as as radical as she is, the ways she's been she's felt like she needs to be traditional. In mm, in, these in what weird, way? And when she talked to the New York Times, she says, um, no matter how progressive things get you can't fight biology and she was talking about the ways in which you know she wanted she wanted to give her daughter a japanese first name so she can you know lend her like to get her husband to like love her child because she was still afraid that her husband wouldn't love the child as much as her yeah yeah and so he's half japanese he's half japanese half filipino she's half chinese half Vietnamese. vietnamese i mean i think also the discussions that she had about um what it means to be a, a female comic who also, you know, has had two children um, mm-hmm. was really interesting because, I mean, I think in an interview that she did uh, on Fresh Air, she was talking about how one of her friends or some of her friends who are women and also comics had been like, really, you're going to have a kid that's going to really change your ability to hustle as much as she was. Mm. Because I think in the New Yorker profile or the New York Times profile about Ali, um, she mentioned how she was going and performing stand up shows every single night around L.A., just workshopping and workshopping and trying to make sure her jokes landed. I love her process. Yeah. Like, she's just like, I can't write. I have to say it out loud. Yeah. And she has to just hear about the applause. (laughs) And I think, um, so the response that she got from some of her friends was, you're not going to be able to continue that hustle. And I think Mm. from, if I'm recalling her interview right, Allie was basically like, I mean, hopefully that's not me. And uh, But ultimately when she had her kids she still had to let her body actually yeah. recover from the yeah. process of giving it's, birth it's major surgery. yeah it's real after her c-section she was back on stage doing a show at after five weeks yeah it's amazing um i have to say it took me a little while to adjust to her i so i watched baby cobra because you know netflix recommends a bunch of things <laughs> and i saw her face on the little tile and I was like on this in this strip that says comedy and there's like all these white men Mm. Hassan Minaj 
and then Ali Wong, who's yeah. like, you know, got these statement glasses on. She's wearing an animal print dress. I'm like, this is somebody who I will find really funny. Yeah. Um, I have a hard time watching comedy because I get fixated on, um, you know, like misogynist and racist jokes, basically. <laughs> I'm like a really stereotypical feminist killjoy in that way. Um, but I... I was not expecting her to be to be so uh, to rest her comedy so heavily on gross out humor. And I, you know, she talks a lot about bodily functions. She kind of she does a lot of physical comedy. So she's like strutting around the stage, kind of like miming sex acts and like scrunching up her face as if she's giving someone a rim job. And I was like, I was really shocked. And I almost felt like it was like some sort of internalized misogyny where I just did not expect that this mm, like interesting be- small like slight beautiful woman and maybe Asian woman would that this would be her brand of comedy yeah mm-hmm. um and I don't normally like that kind of comedy but the more I've watched her stuff the more I love it because bodies are fucking gross mm-hmm. and <laughs> and I've never seen somebody I guess the I was trying to compare her to Amy Schumer and Mm. her sort of brand of sex comedy. And I just I don't find Amy Schumer very funny. And I think it's because Ali Wong is uh, doesn't have the same shtick where Amy Schumer's a little bit like airheaded, shallow girl who sleeps around. And Ali Wong is like uh, bringing a little bit more critique to ethnic studies major at UCLA. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, there's a great line. Where she says, you know, when she was taking eth- uh, ethnic st- Asian American studies at UCLA, a classmate of hers says, like, do you do you want to study or do you want to be studied? And that's when she felt like she wanted to go into this love of hers comedy. Mm. And I think like that to me also speaks to her just like being like, fuck it. I'm a do like I'm going to I'm going to th- throw, excuse my expression, balls to the wall and, you know, be who I am and be that bro like you know, she reminds me almost like of a of a Jewish, you know, white guy comedian. If you think about it. like if you were to take her exact act minus the pregnancy, the people that love Adam Sandler will love it. And, you know, like you said, Christina, you would be disgusted and it wouldn't be OK. So I guess my question right. to the both of you is, do you think like a part of what is funny is because she's a petite Asian woman doing this? I think what I find funny about her humor is that I've never particularly had a comic speak to me so specifically because the jokes that she makes about being Asian American, no one else could make because they wouldn't have that same perspective that she has, you know, where she can make the jungle Asian, fancy Asian joke. I mean, and certainly uh, not everybody who's Asian American loves that joke, um, of course, because it's a huge, huge demographic and group of people. But Like, you know, what she says about her father who, you know, grew up really, really poor and uh, like eventually hustled his way to be a doctor. And yet he still had some of these tendencies that she found super crude. Like he would just fart in public. Like the way she talks about that. It's (laughs) so so relatable. Timing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, just the... The way she talks about things, it's not because she's mm. irreverent. It's not necessarily just because she physically is Asian. It's because the way she 
makes these jokes and just shapes them around identity is, yeah. is pretty unique right now. Yeah, and I, and, that, and she's doing the thing that I always talk about, which is like when you center yourself in everything you do. So like she's centered, like her, she's not <laughs> to land from a, a code switch term. She's not using the explanatory comma, right? She is who she is. She doesn't, she's not explaining who she is. She's just being who she is. And she's giving, she's telling the kind of stories and jokes she wants to, which, um, which I can't believe I just used explanatory. Comma. I know. I like, oh my god, we have a good switch crossover. <laughs> yeah. um, which I think. Can is you explain what, what an explanatory comma is? Yes. So an explanatory <laughs> comma is basically when you have to pause and say, like, uh, Ali Wong, the Asian American comedian, instead of just being like Ali mm, Wong and yes. then mm-hmm. continuing on. We never with most white guys we never like you know Adam Sandler the white comedian or Jewish American you know and it's interesting because it says it says it signals so much about who you want your audience to be or who you think your audience is because like Ali Wong yeah she doesn't really explain the Asian jokes and so you feel so seen as or Mm -hmm. I feel so seen as a Chinese American woman listening to her comedy and thinking like oh this is for me finally yes and everyone else can just catch up yeah (laughs) Um, I at Slate we have a section called Outward where we have all sorts of LGBTQ content and we talk a lot about who our audience is and I think that I, I always wanted to serve a dual purpose like I want to be talking to queer people without talking down to them yeah and I want other people to feel you know, straight people, for instance, to feel not that they're being taught, but that they're listening in on a conversation yes, that's right. already happening. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as a white person watching Ali Wong, I it occurred to me how many people, how many white male comedians I had seen make jokes about pregnancy and jokes about sex with women after pregnancy and jokes about Asians driving and you know, making jokes about other people versus making jokes about your own experience and and jokes within your own community that maybe I don't get all of the Asian jokes that Ali Wong is saying, or maybe I feel uncomfortable laughing at them. But usually I just feel like I'm eavesdropping on a really mm-hmm. funny conversation that yeah. another community is having. And that is really gratifying also, you know, even though I don't always feel like it's directed at me, right. it's refreshing because I don't always want everything to be directed at exactly me. Mm, that's awesome. And I think that's a really, I mean, the tension that you bring up about, um, you know, what you're trying to achieve in your writing, which is to speak to all these audiences, but sort of to like, look directly at the group that you want to reach while not completely alienating everyone. That is like, that is the biggest hurdle that I think a lot of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, otherized creators have to deal with in any industry. All right. I'm excited to hear what you, our listeners, have to say about Ali Wong and the way she talks about pregnancy and childbirth and breastfeeding in particular. Have you watched it as a pregnant person? Have you watched it with a pregnant person? Um, Let us know. Okay, let's get into our recommendations. Verilyn, it sounds like you have something good to recommend. It feels so interesting to be on this side of things. First of all, I feel like I wanted to shut that out because um, usually I, I'm listening to you all, the host of Double X. <laughs> oh, formerly known as Double X, the host of The Waves, um, <laughs> talk about their recommendations. But I'll start with the thing that I want people to think about critically. The um, The New York Times podcast, The Daily, is, has done a five-part series on the life and death of LeVar Montre Douglas, who was shot by the police a year after Freddie Gray 
was brutalized and died from from injuries caused by brutality from um, the Baltimore Police Department. And um, it started at the start of this week. And at the same time that I was really happy that they were doing this five-part series on something that isn't, you know, people always want to say, what's next? But I think it's interesting to always be thinking about what happened and what's the historical context behind things. At the same time, I was really, like, amped that that was existing and happening. Um, I also didn't want, I listened to it, like, first thing in the morning, every morning. And I just didn't want to hear Freddie Gray's final screams the first thing in the morning. (laughs) I didn't want to hear Mike Brown's mother's cries because of her, you know, lost child or Eric Gardner dying on tape. And I think, you know, the thing that I, I guess, the thing that I'm recommending is that at the same time, I'm happy that this reporting has happened. Let's think critically about who gets to tell these stories. And I know that if I was in that editing room, those comments, the story would have been very different because I would have been able to center my experience and experiences of, you know, people that are really tired of hearing black pain just be used as a storytelling tool. Do you know if there are black folks involved in the production of that? Regardless of who actually worked on this, I think more importantly, I think we should think about like, okay, when we hear these things, there needs to be some media literacy um, components in it and thinking about um, like, why are people making the choices that they're making? Um in terms of playing that audio. In terms of playing that audio or even just in, you know, how long you linger on it or, you know, or like where it is. Like is like if it's if this is about LeVar's death, then what do you start with? Right. <laughs> you know, that, those are the kind of things that I, you know, as I was listening, I actually haven't finished it because I just couldn't. And then I was like, well, when is a good time to think about black pain? Um, so I will get to it eventually, maybe on a like when I'm on a beach somewhere this summer. Um, but that, what I so that's the. That's the like complicated recommendation. What I want to recommend is a book by Tahiri Jones. It's called An American Marriage. Mm. Um, Oprah has recommended it, given her stamp of approval. <laughs> uh, and what I, I mean, the story is a it's a story that is about mass incarceration, but more specifically, it's about one person, more persons incarceration, and it tells it tells a story about like how. When when someone was wrongly sent to jail, how that affected this marriage. And I think it's really powerful that she calls it an American marriage um, because it's an African-American um, couple that this the story is centered on. And I think that is really profound to think about, like, this is America. We are like to center our histories, African-American histories in the history of America. That sounds great. Yeah, I want to read it. Kat, tell us what you have. I have a book also. It's called The Incendiaries, and it's by a writer named Aro Kwan. And the book will come out in uh, June or July, so it's not out yet. But I got to read an advanced copy. But it's amazing. It's uh, really interesting, and I'm still processing it. It's about mm-hmm. uh, this young Korean-American woman and a young man. They're college-aged. They go to this elite fictional school that sort of reminds me of like Williams or Amherst, you know, one of those. <laughs> and uh, while they're uh, the the woman, Phoebe, she gets sort of entrapped in this Christian cult while the male character is just leaving Christianity and he's, mm. uh, you know, he's left his religion. And it's a lot about sort of how ideologies are built and what belief systems are on. And it's so complicated because it's told through the perspective of the male character who you really start to learn is not necessarily a trustworthy narrator. Mm. And I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it, but 
it it really did a number on me. Like it's, mm. you know, as I said, it's about a cult. And I found myself the next morning having nightmares about cults. And it kind of <laughs> just, it, it's something that, um, like, just from a storytelling perspective, Aro Kwan, um, she's also Korean-American herself, um, she plays with structure in this interesting way that I think, um, as someone who loves reading fiction, I just I just wanted to sort of dissect how she mm. did it. Um, so I highly recommend it when it comes out later this summer. It was just a really fascinating book that I think everyone should just watch out for. Wow. Christina, how about you? What's your recommendation this week? I am recommending season two of Dear White People. Uh, I devoured it in just a couple days. I absolutely love uh, Justin Simeon's storytelling. Mm -hmm. Every episode centers on a different character and how it centers on a couple different events and how each character interprets it. The characters are a really diverse group of people, uh, black students at an elite university. And what I loved about this season was that um, Joelle, who's sort of the best friend of the main character, Sam, um, played by Ashley Blaine Featherson, really gets her good storyline, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, she it has to do with uh, always being second choice or playing second fiddle to her best friend, Sam, who's this sort of conventionally attractive and uh, importantly, lighter skinned black woman, um, biracial. which I always found that like, a, and she's biracial. Um, it's a little bit of a stretch, I thought, because uh, Ashley Lane Featherson is also gorgeous. But <laughs> it made me think about how the show, Dear White People, um, I thought kind of fell into that trap a little bit where... Logan Browning, who plays Sam, who is a fine actress, uh, I don't think quite has the acting chops that Ashley Blaine Featherson does, who plays the second best, or, mm. you know, the the best friend character. Um, and so I I felt like I was identifying a critique of the show within the show. Um, but her, Joelle, the, or the actress, Ashley Blaine Featherson, her performance is a real joy to watch. Um, and there's a great part in episode eight where Sam um, and who has a radio show about about racial issues on campus and her ex-boyfriend Gabe who's white who's making a documentary about racial issues on campus have this really intense prolonged fight about kind of the role of a white ally on campus Um, and I was like holding my breath through that whole fight and every time one of them said something I was like yeah and that too Uh, and I was like I I had a really long discussion afterwards with my partner because it was uh, I had never seen a show tackle head on these these issues that would be so hard to depict, I think, because everyone's always going to have everyone's going to complain about how you depict it. But they really laid a lot of stuff bare. So I I think everyone should watch it. I definitely co-signed that recommendation, Christina. I loved it season as well. All right. That's it for the episode. Unless you're a Slate Plus member. Uh, in which case, stay tuned for our Slate Plus segment. Thank you to producer Verilyn Williams. Hi, Verilyn. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You're here on the mic today. And our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. For Verilyn Williams and Kat Chow, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. 
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save 